Hello, my name's Florence. Welcome to the OBS pod. I'm an NHS obstetrician, hoping to share some thoughts and experiences about my working life. Perhaps you enjoy Call the Midwife, maybe birth fascinates you, or you're simply curious about what exactly an obstetrician is. You might be pregnant and preparing for birth. Perhaps you work in maternity and want to know what makes your obstetric colleagues tick, or you want some fresh ideas and inspiration. Whichever of these is the case, and for that matter, anyone else that's interested, the OBSPOD is for you. Episode 69. Obstetric cholestasis. Sorry, what was that? Obstetric what? That was the question my husband immediately asked when I told him I was doing this topic. Cholestasis simply means a decrease in the flow of bile, which means there's a build-up of substances which should be flowing from your liver to your gut in the bile duct. Therefore, obstetric cholestasis just means cholestasis in pregnancy. It's a liver condition in pregnancy, sometimes shortened to OC. Why have I chosen to talk about OC? I think because at the moment there's quite a lot to talk about. It's something that we see not infrequently and some of the national guidance is rather out of date. Let's start with how you would know you have it. Typically, women itch and it's often said that this is on the hands and feet, palms and soles but it can be all over the place. And this is why if you casually mention during your pregnancy to a doctor or midwife the seemingly innocuous symptom of itching, they will suddenly start questioning you in depth and taking blood tests, particularly if the itching isn't associated with a rash and is in the last third of pregnancy. Mild itching, a liver problem. Why do we care and why have I chosen to talk about it? The reason it's a really big topic is due to the relationship between obstetric cholestasis, OC, and stillbirth. And this, in itself, is a tricky one. For a long time, it's been thought that women with OC had a higher risk of stillbirth, despite a paucity of evidence and very little understanding as to how. What's the mechanism? And this resulted in us recommending induction of labour to women with OC as early as 37 weeks. Now that's quite early. That could be a whole four or five weeks before your baby intended to naturally put in an appearance. That may mean the baby's not that ready and it could mean that the woman is not that ready. Her body hasn't made the changes softening and ripening the neck of the womb to get ready for labour. As obstetric cholestasis is present in about 0.7% of the pregnant population, this could suddenly result in a whole lot of intervention, not to mention a considerable amount of fear. If you tell a woman that she's developed a condition that increases her risk of stillbirth, and we don't really understand why, and there's very little we can do to prevent it, That's not a comforting thought. If this is going to be our starting point, 
we had better be certain of our diagnosis, hadn't we? Starting there, there's an immediate problem. Mainly, obstetric cholestasis is a diagnosis of exclusion. That means we diagnose it by excluding everything else that could be causing abnormal liver blood tests. That means if a woman has abnormal liver tests and itching, we need to organise a liver ultrasound scan and screen her for a number of viral infections and autoimmune conditions that could be causing her liver tests to become abnormal. In other words, to make sure it's not a completely different illness altogether. I can remember several women over the course of my career that we assumed had obstetric cholestasis that actually turned out to have acute hepatitis or other acute viral illnesses. And at least one of those was only diagnosed when the neonatal team diagnosed the baby as having a neonatal infection and the maternity staff suddenly had an embarrassing moment when the penny dropped that this was what it had been all along. We'd completely misunderstood what was wrong with the woman in the days leading up to her baby's birth. So what blood tests are we looking at? We look at liver function tests. That's a bit of a misnomer in itself. In some ways, if you want to understand how the liver is functioning, you actually want to look at the things that it has an impact on, such as blood clotting or albumin production, one of the key proteins in the blood. Instead, we look at liver enzymes called transanamases as well as bile acids. One liver enzyme, alkaline phosphatase, is raised in pregnancy significantly anyway as it's produced by the placenta, so we can ignore it. And that brings me to my next point, which is we need to use the correct reference range for pregnancy. With money blood tests, the physiological changes the body makes in pregnancy mean that what we as obstetricians accept as a normal level or a normal blood test result is significantly different to what doctors see in other specialties. It's often lower. And that means that levels that would normally be considered in the reference range for an adult can actually be alarming to us as obstetricians. So we look at bile acids and we look at transanamases. Even a mild rise in bile acids, levels above 10, can be considered significant. In more recent guidance, we've started to look at levels up to or above 40, determining what advice we give the woman. And bile acids aren't something that we test very much in other specialties or other illnesses outside of maternity. So immediately there's a problem that the lab may only do the assay, the test, once or twice a week. For a long time, our lab did bile acids on a Monday or a Thursday. So if you had a woman that presented on a different day and you took a blood test, you would be waiting for a significant time before you got the blood test result. And once women have a diagnosis, we're often testing them once a week or once a fortnight, depending on their levels. So knowledge about when the lab is going to do the test and when we're going to do the result is key in making sure we get the results quickly 
it would be sensible to get the woman to have the blood test on the day we know the lab is ready to run the test. It may sound a bit bizarre, but that is something we have to take into consideration. Tests that are done infrequently are usually batched by laboratories. They collect enough samples during the week to be able to run the test. Often after a period of trial and error of a woman not getting results for days on end, the women start to know too which day they need to have their blood test for the lab to actually process it and for them to get an answer in a reasonable time frame. Okay, let's assume we've made a diagnosis. We've excluded other liver complications. What now? How are we going to treat it? On the whole, we treat it with symptom control. Aqueous menthol cream for the skin, which makes the skin feel cool and therefore gives good relief. And antihistamines. Why do we bother? Itching can sound very trivial and for some women it is and it's quite manageable. Often the itching is a bit worse at night and therefore quite disruptive to sleep. So the aqueous menthol cream and antihistamines have a place there. But for some women the itching is incessant. It's unbearable and I've had women present with their skin grazed and broken, what we call excoriated as a medical term, because they've been scratching so significantly to try and get relief from the itch. I've had some women with severe OC describe it as if insects are crawling under their skin. And I've had women have such intense itching that the only relief they can get is by using a hairbrush to scratch. For these rare, severe cases, itching is unbearable and it can also start at a much earlier stage of pregnancy. So the whole pregnancy becomes a trial of endurance. How much can she cope with the incessant itching? Traditionally, we're taught that OC starts from about 20 weeks or onwards. But I know some severe cases happen as early as the first trimester and I've certainly witnessed it as early as 12 weeks. The other treatment we've used for many years is ursodeoxycholic acid. A bit of a mouthful, I know. We tend to shorten it to urso. It made us feel we were doing something. Back to my point, there's a certain degree of helplessness. Yeah, we're going to tell you there's a higher risk of stillbirth. We don't understand it. And so we're going to give you an untested treatment and then recommend our old blunt tool of induction that I've talked about in depth in other episodes. I must admit to being a little bit confused at the latest research that suggests Urso doesn't work. I always felt that I would see the woman's bile acids fall and often the itching reduce in my clinic. But when they did the two research projects, Pitch and Pitches, they compared it with placebo. It was actually no better. So we don't have a good treatment, or at least not present. The other thing about OC is it has a massive impact on women's choices. The diagnosis inevitably moves a woman from a so-called low-risk, low-chance category to 
in inverted commas, high risk. I've seen a number of women having their plans for home birth shelved or met with significant resistance due to a diagnosis of cholestasis. I can hear you thinking, but hang on a minute, she just said there's an increased risk of stillbirth. Obviously, that makes sense. Well, it does until you look at the evidence behind that, which I'm going to come on to. It's true that there is more likely to be meconium during labour and that might necessitate transfer in labour and the recommendation for continuous fetal heartbeat monitoring, something I've explored in depth in another episode. But actually, what rationale do we have for saying that this baby must be born in a hospital under obstetric leg care? If you go back to our guideline, the current one from the RCOG is from 2011, but was reviewed in 2014. There's very little evidence, in fact, that the perinatal mortality risks are above that of the background risk for all pregnant women. And there is evidence of increased maternal morbidity with induction. So if you look at the current RCOG guideline and examine its level of evidence for stillbirth, the advice to discuss induction, the evidence level is B, i.e. it's kind of medium quality. Alongside this is the statement that we have no way of predicting fetal death. Ultrasound and fetal heartbeat monitoring do not help. And I recently asked a perinatal pathologist what they might expect to see during an examination of a baby and a placenta who may have died from obstetric cholestasis. And the answer was they wouldn't expect to see anything. It seems that the stillbirth is a very sudden event with no evidence of placental insufficiency and the hypothesis is a heart arrhythmia. Given the lack of predictability and our understanding of the cause of stillbirth, it's a pretty big leap to the recommendation, therefore, that this should be a consultant-led hospital birth with continuous heartbeat monitoring. And in the guideline, there's another worrying fact that actually iatrogenic preterm birth, that means not preterm birth when a woman went into spontaneous labour, but preterm birth where we induced or did a caesarean early is more common. Does this reflect our discomfort as obstetricians, midwives and women being unable to manage our collective anxiety about OC and our sense of slight helplessness in how to manage the condition? It's not totally clear why some women get it and others don't, although it's supposed to be oestrogen related. There may also be some sort of genetic component And certainly I've had women contribute to studies looking at that genetic element and whether it runs in their family. The same women that get it should ideally not use the combined oral contraceptive pill for the simple reason that the oestrogen in the combined contraceptive pill may cause them a similar problem. And the women that get it should have blood tests about 10 days after the birth of their baby to make sure that it's gone and it definitely was obstetric related. Unfortunately, it's often a recurrent problem. 
data suggests anywhere from 45% to up to 90%. So if you're unlucky enough to get OC in pregnancy, it's extremely likely you're going to get it again and again. So does that mean we're unnecessarily inducing a generation of women repeatedly? I have women who come expecting induction at 37 weeks now because they know that's what's happened before. Their body and their baby may potentially be far from ready, but they know that's what happens to them in pregnancy and that's what obstetric cholestasis means for them. One of the reasons I've chosen to talk about this is it's a very emotive topic and yet we're still really clutching at straws in terms of how to treat it. But there is some new information. A research study published in 2019, which I've enclosed in the programme notes, suggests that actually bile acids greater or equal to 100 are the levels at which there's a significant increase in the risk of poor perinatal outcome. That is stillbirth. Traditionally, we used to act at a level of bile acids greater than 10. And more recently, we've moved to looking at bile acids over 40. Would moving our intervention to bile acids greater than 100 mean that we could really target those women and babies that really are at increased risk of stillbirth and reassure the more than 90% of women with obstetric cholestasis who really aren't at a higher risk. 2019, that study was published and I know lots of hospitals are already adapting how they care for women with OC as a result. It takes time to change national guidance. The move from a research study into guidance and implementation takes an unbelievably long time. In the meantime, let's think about what we can do. The zesty bit. As a maternity service worker, I think it's worth taking a moment to think about that iatrogenic preterm delivery. That's quite an uncomfortable fact to consider. We need to think about if we're recommending birth, let's be clear why and be honest with women about what we actually just don't know. We need to reserve it for those exceptional, rare and severe cases where the bile acids are really that high. And we need to be aware that the RCOG green top is currently somewhat out of date. I've included a link to ICP support, a fantastic group. And in the rare instances I've had extremely severe cases, the team, professionals, have been invaluable in providing me with advice, how to monitor, when to deliver, and involving women in their research projects. But not only that, they've been fantastic at supporting the women as well connecting them with other women with similar experiences, providing them with support when a diagnosis is made and they've got that fear about what may happen to their baby and enabling them to contribute to research so that 
hopefully in the future, we have far more answers about how we understand and treat this. Therefore, my zesty bit for both pregnant women and families and for staff is do explore the ICP support link in today's programme notes. It will help you understand what we do know, what we don't, what the most recent research is. And for women with OC recurrence in a pregnancy, it may help explain to you why some of the treatments that you were given before are perhaps not being suggested or offered to you in your current pregnancy. OC remains a bit of a puzzle and certainly one that I'm hoping in years to come will have been significantly solved. I do hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of The Obs Pod. Feel free to contact me on Twitter at FWMaternity or at The Obs Pod to ask me questions, give me topics for future episodes or let me know what you think. It's absolutely fantastic when you get in touch I really enjoy reading your comments. As usual, I've tried to include in the programme notes some extra reading about this particular topic, both for professionals working in maternity care and for pregnant women using services. I'd like to reassure you that although I'm talking about my experiences working in maternity care, I take confidentiality very seriously and do not give any personal information about any of my patients. If you've enjoyed listening, I'd love you to recommend the OBSPOD to friends or colleagues. And please do leave me a review on whichever podcast directory you find my episodes. Many thanks for listening. <laughs>